we'll dismiss our kiddos to the back for their classes. And while they're doing that, I would invite you to open your Bibles, if you brought one with you, to Exodus chapter 19. If you didn't bring one with you, we will have uh, many of the scriptures on the screen behind us. Um, uh, inside your connection guide is a little card called the uh, By Name Initiative. And uh, if you didn't pick up a connection guide when you came in, I want you to make sure you get one on your way out because I would like us um, as a church to have 100% participation in this. And um, we're going to talk more about that at the end and in subsequent weeks. But this is a four-week initiative that uh, we're going to um, partner together to pray for the people that God has placed around us, specifically those who um, are far from God. So um, if you want to look at that, um, I will make reference to that uh, a little later. Um, But God can do, even as uh, Jason talked about earlier, God can do some pretty incredible things things through the prayers of his people. I want to pray for us before we jump in, and if you would pray silently there in your seats while I pray aloud, um, I do feel this real sense of, I don't know if it's apathy or uncertainty in the room this morning. Would you pray? Would you pray for me as um, I'm going to preach God's word, and when you pray for your own heart, God, thank you for the gift of your word. It says of itself that it's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. That it doesn't return void. So my prayer, um, Father, is that uh, the seed of your word would fall on good ground this morning. That the soil of our hearts would be fertile, receptive to what you have to say to us knowing that whatever you say, no matter what it leads to of repentance or encouragement, that it would be the best for us and ultimately would provide joy. Honor the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's been quite a journey in the book of Exodus, and um, we're going to get uh, through chapter 19, which takes us to Mount Sinai, Um, Where you might be familiar with, if you've seen the movies of the Ten Commandments, this is the mountain that Moses would go up and get the commandments of God. It's also where the wheels kind of fall off the thing a little bit with the uh, nation of Israel as he's up there just a short while and they're melting all the gold that they got from the Egyptians to worship another inanimate object, worship a golden calf. But we're going to pause on actually getting the Ten Commandments for a few weeks, and we're going to start a little three or four week series starting next week um, focused around this by name initiative. But I think God's got something to say to us here. As a way of review, if you remember the story that Moses has been called by God to take God's people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt into the promised land. They're going to have quite a journey getting there. Along the way, there's several milestones that we see what God did, and he taught them lessons. The Red Sea was a place of salvation. Mara, the place of testing. Elim was a place of rest. 
The wilderness of sin was a place of provision with manna and quail. Masa and Meribah, a place of warning. Rephidim, the place of battle that Jason touched on last week. And now we come to Sinai, which will be a place where God um, renews his covenant with them. Exodus 19 is a key chapter in the book. In fact, it's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. You may think Exodus 20 is the important chapter where we get the Ten Commandments, and it certainly is. But Exodus 19 is just as important as Exodus 20. In fact, some scholars think that verses 4 through 6, the ones that uh, GT read earlier, are the heart of the entire book. Others say that they're really the heart or the fulcrum of the entire Old Testament. And there's a major transition that happens in chapter 19. The emphasis moves from who God is to who God's people are. Who we are to be. What is expected of us. If I was the author of the book of Exodus, I would end at Exodus chapter 15, right? The Song of Moses. The great victory. They made it through the Red Sea. What a book. What a story. Many of us, I think, would also end it well. And think about this. This would make a great movie, right? Moses found in the bulrushes of the Nile, adopted into Pharaoh's own household. Then his real mother actually being paid to care for him. The burning bush, the unlikely hero shepherd with a bad past rising like a phoenix from the ashes to go in and to deliver his people. And then we've got the plagues and the Red Sea and the uh, Egyptians drown. And then this exuberant song they all break into and they're singing about how great God is. Wouldn't that be the place to end it? We would all leave the theater happy. But that's just Exodus 15. We've got 25 more chapters and after this great act of redemption and salvation, revealing who God is, the one to save us, there's the whole rest of the book that engages the question, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to wander in the wilderness with him? What does it mean to have the law given to us and for us to fail it again and again? The point is, is we don't truly know God if that knowledge does not affect who we are and how we live our lives. No matter what you say or profess or sing, which doctrine that you claim to believe, if it doesn't make any difference into how you think, how you live, how you feel, who you are, then you really have not encountered the real God of the Bible. When you really know him and see him and begin to appropriate the fact that he is Lord, it cannot help but shape your identity. It cannot help but give you a new lens at which you view life, a new lens by how you might view your resources and your money and your talents and treasure. You can't live your Christian life without getting to the so what part of the story. We, the Christian life does not end in Exodus 15. Just as your life did not end with you coming to salvation. Hopefully at some point in our lives, most of us in this room have had this sort of encounter where where our eyes were open to the truth and we repented of our sins and we entrusted Christ as uh, ourselves to Christ as him being our Lord and Savior. But that's not the end of your life. There's so much more to your story than just that. So I want to answer two questions from this passage today. Who are we called to be and what are we called to do? Who are we called to be and what are we called to do? The ache of every human ever born sociologists tell us the things that they absolutely need to thrive in life is not necessarily a great education although those that's very helpful 
It's not being born in a free society like America. What they need, sociologists tell us, is to know that they're loved, for us to know that we're understood and heard, and for us to have some sort of purpose, some reason for all of this, to have a purpose in what we're doing. And I love that... A long time before sociologists came up that that's what the basic human needs are, God answers those things. Look with me again in chapter 19. In verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my command, my covenant... You shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. We, like the Israelites, are redeemed people. I love how verse 4 begins, you yourselves. It's bad grammar, but the emphasis is noted, right? There's an emphasis here. God wants to emphasize something to bold it or italics it or underline it or draw a smiley face next to it or circle it. And maybe you would do that even in your scripture. You yourselves have seen this. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know what I did, how I crushed my enemies, how I rescued you, my people. You've seen it with your own eyes. You were there. You saw the plagues and the walls of water in the Red Sea and the provision in the wilderness and the quail fall down and the manna every morning. You've seen this. You know who you are. You are a redeemed people. You weren't, were slaves. In the not too distant past, you were slaves, but now you are free. And if you belong to Christ, you have seen an act of redemption even greater than the one that led the Israelites out of Egypt. You have been given new life in Christ. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, Ephesians tells us. Some of you can remember very poignantly who you were, what you were like, what you were chasing, what you squandered and wasted in the years before Christ. You remember how you used to think and how you used to act. You remember it very in a very real way. You you yourselves have seen what God's done in your life. Some of You who've had the benefit of coming to Christ at a very early age, maybe the memory of your life without Christ is not very real, but but you still understand that even in the dry times in your walk with God, this is so true of me, when, when I have a dry week, when I feel like I'm in a desert, I try to go back there as quickly as I can and remember all that God has done in my life. You yourselves, he says, have seen what I've done. Notice that as a redeemed people, they were passive in their deliverance. But they weren't going to be passive in living for him. I think that's key. You have to work as God works in you. But this initial act of redemption from bondage and slavery, they were passive in. He even uses this uh, imagery. I bore you on eagle's wings. You hopped on board, he says, this majestic bird. And I basically like flew you out of Egypt and into safety. You didn't get on the eagle and push up and down and make the eagle's wings work. You didn't help him flap his wings. I did all of this, God says. And when God saves you, he doesn't just bring you out. He brings you in. 
He brings you out of slavery and into himself. Remember, what did, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? He didn't just say, let my people go. We know, we know that part is, is in the song or in the movie. He actually said, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Pharaoh, you need to let the people go because they don't serve you. They were created to serve me. The goal was never freedom in and of itself, but freedom to worship, serve, and have a relationship with the one in whom they were created from. To have a relationship with the true and living God. This book echoes from Exodus. I have this quote, Escaping from Egypt is only... The first half of the Exodus. It's easy for us to forget this in an age where freedom is understood as merely being freedom, uh, free from something, from oppression, from constraint, or whatever. The aspect of liberation, as wonderful as it is, is only half the deal. In the scriptures, more emphasis is, pla- is placed on the freedom for, for worship, for flourishing, for growth and obedience and joy and glory. Human beings are not designed to be free from all constraint. Slaves to nothing but our own passions, triumphantly enthroned as our own masters, even our own gods. Everybody serves somebody. So the point of the Exodus is not just for Israel to find deliverance from serving the old master. It is to help them find delight in serving the new one. This powerful truth is at the heart of Christian discipleship. Many of our kids are going through the New City Catechism. They're learning about some of those things even back there now. Some of you may be like me. We have a really strong start. Like questions one through four, my kids have those. The opening question in New City Catechism is one of the most beautiful statements of all Christian doctrine. It asks, what is our only hope in life and death? Any of you know the answer? We are not our own, but belong to God. What is our only hope in life and death? This is the message of Exodus. What is our only hope in life and death? Not that we would be free from our sins so that we could do whatever we wanted to, that we could live this glandular living and whatever feels good do it, kind of the mantra of the age, but that we are not our own, but we belong to God. The long answer, which we don't remember the long answers very much. We are not our own, but belong body and soul, both both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The freest people in the world are those who are owned by someone else, especially God, our great father. Service is liberty and obedience becomes joy. That was God's end game with the Exodus all along. Back in the burning bush, he described Moses' mission like this. Maybe you remember it from Exodus chapter 3 verse 12. God speaking from the burning bush, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain and this is where they're at again this is the same mountain that Moses in some way had this burning bush experience I imagine him taking some of these elders and uh, Joshua and say hey man I want you to come see come see the bush to talk to me going back and remembering all that God had done and that was God's promise You are currently servants to Pharaoh God explained but when we're done with this you're going to be servants to me and as it turns out Freedom from serving Pharaoh is the easy bit from beginning to end. It takes only 14 chapters. 
Freedom to serve God, on the other hand, takes 40 years of wandering and in the next four books of the Pentateuch. He says in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So who are we called to be? We're called to be God's treasured possession. Don't you love how he says in there, for all the earth is mine? Like, it's not like the day before prom and God's looking for a date, right? And we're the best option of other people who don't have dates yet. No, he said, hey, listen, all the earth is mine. Everything you see is mine. This isn't a God who has is desperate to have a friend. No, everything is his, the whole earth. He's got the Grand Canyon. He's got Hawaii. He's got the Florida Keys. He's got the beauty of Alaska. Think of the most beautiful thing that you have ever seen. One of those sights that almost takes your breath away. All of that is the Lord's, every bit of it, created out of his own imagination. And we're only seeing the fallen state of it. As creation groans with the rest of mankind because of sin, we see the fallen state. Can you imagine what the beauty of everything might be without the effect of sin on it? God says, I created all the things. I created everything. But you are my treasured possession. You're what's really dear to my heart. To put it in an anthropomorphic term, you're the ones I, I think about. You're, you're the ones that I think about when, what does it say in Psalms? That he thinks of us more than all the grains of sand on all the beaches of the world. That's how much God's mind is on us. That's how much we are running through his mind. His heart's affection and his mind's focus and attention is on the redeemed people of God. We are his treasured possession. Who are we? This is who we are. This becomes our new and greater identity. Not our culture of where we're from. Although to honor some of the uh, cultural things from your past can be a great thing and a, and a treasured thing. But this becomes our new identity that we are loved and treasured by the God of the universe. This is who we are. And if we ever doubt that God loves us to that extent, let us look no further than the cross of Christ. On your worst day, when you're kind of wallowing in your own self-pity, ever happened to anyone? I spent a day or two there this week myself. That we look back at the cross and see the greatest extent of love. Jesus would say himself, greater love hath no man than this, than he lay his life down for his friends. We are his friends. That's who we are. That answers some of the question, but what are we called to do? We're not only a precious people, says in verse 5, but we're a priestly people. Look at the therefore in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. And don't get caught up in the conditional clause there of 
if you will indeed obey. God is just using covenant language. The closest thing that we have to a covenant language is uh, the marriage ceremony where we walk down an aisle and we share our vows with each other and we make this covenant before God and, and everyone who's there to witness. This is a covenant but God, even though we've broken the covenant, and in just the next couple chapters, we're going to see the people of Israel break the covenant. God still loves them with this fear, fierce, unstopping love anyway. I want us to focus not on the if in that sentence, but the therefore. There's always a therefore in the Christian life. We see it here in verse 5 as we transition. Redeemed people, yes. Slave from Egypt, awesome. Therefore. We don't put an end to that. It continues. There's a foundation for everything that is to come. After three chapters of the blessings in Christ, and you ought to read Ephesians 1. Make that maybe some of your homework this afternoon. After three chapters of blessings in Christ, Ephesians 4 begins with, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. There's a therefore. Most famously, maybe in Romans 12, after 11 chapters of what it means to be adopted and justified and sanctified and chosen and born again, he says, Therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some Christians take a long time before they realize that there's a therefore in the Christian life. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that I believe these things that my mom and dad taught me and that I go to church and if I'm really spiritual, then I'm going to place some of my money in the basket. But that's not the essence of the Christian life. We've forgotten that there's a therefore. There's a whole lot more than Christianity than just raising your hands and attesting that I believe the right things. Identity leads to responsibility, which leads to our ultimate purpose. He says here, our purpose is that we would be a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, that we have access. And some of this is so far removed because we don't have the priestly office necessarily on one person. In Christ, we have the priesthood of the believer, that we don't have to use Moses to go up the mountain and hear from God, but all of us can go up the mountain and hear from God. But in the Old Testament, the priests had a privileged position, a unique relationship with unique access to God. The priests represented the people to God in prayers and offerings, and they represented God to the people in making atonement. In other words, to be a kingdom of priests means that we are a people with a special closeness to God and a special calling from God. What did the priests do? Three things, namely, intercession, invitation, and imitation. Intercession, invitation, and imitation. Intercession, that as a kingdom of priests, we are to intercede not only for each other, but for the nations. Part of what it means to be a kingdom of priests was that they were going to be set apart as a holy nation so that the nations could see them and say, whoa, what is going on with Israel and their God? We don't talk much in church about intercessory prayer. But that is a huge part of our role as this kingdom of priests. That with one hand we're holding the hand of God and with the other hand we're holding the brokenness that's around us. Maybe it's a specific person 
that is lost in sin, feeling the effects and consequences of a life of sin, a life apart from God, a God that loves them. And we're the ones in the middle holding God and holding them, and we are praying as an intercessor for those people. It's the same thing Jesus did when he was on the cross of Christ. When, when, when Jesus was on the, uh, the, the cross, that he would, what did he pray? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He was operating in his intercessory office. He was making intercession for them. The truth is, church, God has placed you specifically in, the, in some pretty dark places and connected to some pretty great dysfunction all around you so that you would be the one who faithfully brings them before the feet of Jesus on your knees, praying for them, pleading for their salvation. This is why we're starting this by name initiative even this week. If we would begin with focus and intentionality, praying for the people that God has placed in our path, that we would fulfill this office of interceding for them. Not only intercession, but imitation. They set an example, the priest did, stirring up the nations to see. What does this mean? These people who have received royal priestly honors and have this closest to God, that they would represent God to the world. Look at the next phrase there, that we were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. phrase holy nation along with the phrase kingdom of priests occurs only once in the old testament though it's represented uh, repeated quite a bit in the new testament yet this idea of a holy nation permeates the entire mosaic covenant like israel church we are to be distinct and set apart and category categorically different as one commentator puts it holiness is a prospect and present possession In other words, holiness is who you are, and it's also what you strive after, which is exactly the same logic as that of the New Testament. The world says, be who you are, but that's only half right. You can only be who you are in your true identity, your identity in Christ, not your identity in Adam. It's your identity in Christ that's to be true to your own nature. We're giving people a false gospel when we tell them that they have to be true to themselves, with their wicked hearts. No, 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 that's not right. The gospel says you can only be who you were created to be when you've been reborn, born again in Christ. Holy has such a religious-sounding veneer to it. The word literally just means different or set apart. In essence, God is saying to the people of Israel and saying to us today, you are to be a royal priesthood and a different people. That's the idea of holiness, that we would be set apart. You know, this is, this is ordinary and this is holy. Every day, most days in our house, we use paper plates. That's ordinary. But once or twice a year, we break open that china cabinet, right? We threaten the kids, don't you break anything. Matter of fact, you don't eat off of this. You can do the paper plates. One is ordinary, one is different, it's set apart you know those times in your life that in essence you have time that is set apart as you think back of 
Maybe some of the worst news and best news you've ever encountered. Birth of a child. Things stop. It's like this altogether, this holy moment. Even for people who are not believers, there's just something so radically different about it that life kind of stops and you can, you can think back on it even now and you can remember the scene of how these things were happening. It's set apart. The psalmist would get so overwhelmed with some of these truths about who God was that he would write the word Selah. It's all over the psalms and it would be a intentional break and in the song that you would sit back and contemplate what you just said it would be a bit of a holy moment this is what it means when he's calling us a holy nation a a different nation a peculiar people and soon we're going to get the ten commandments that are going to instruct god's people how to live in a In such a pagan world, they would be so set apart, so different. And I would exhort you, church, that we should strive to be holy. We should strive to please God. Don't confuse appeasing God with pleasing God. You cannot appease God. There is no measure of obedience that you could ever attain that would make up for our sin against him. That is why Jesus has come. We cannot appease God. God has appeased himself by sending Jesus, his son, who lived a perfect life, took the sins of the world upon himself, so to rightly deal with our sin. We cannot earn our acceptance by our works, no matter matter how good we are. We receive salvation, a place in God's family because of the work of Jesus. Let me make that clear. We cannot appease God. But we can strive to please God. This is why this passage starts with God reminding the people all he did to end their slavery and bring them into, remember the whole thing about the eagle? Like, I redeemed you. I placed you on the the eagle's wings. I'm the one that ushered you out of slavery into this mountain. I've done all of that. And because of that, I'm going to ask you to do these things now. We don't strive to appease God, but as those accepted and loved because of God's great love towards us, we are called to live a life that pleases God. We don't work our way into a relationship with him, but once we're brought into that relationship with God because of our faith and the work of Jesus on our behalf, we are to seek and strive to please God. We are called to obey the commandments of God. Even Jesus himself said, if you really love me, then you will do what I say, that you will will obey my commandments, and that pleases God. One commentator said, the law of God is not a ladder by which we climb To appease God, no, it becomes a track in which the justified life runs. God's law reveals to us what's in God's heart. And the Lord has expectations for his people. He expects us to live a life that pleases him. You cannot get away from this. This is not even an Old Testament, just an Old Testament concept. It's all through the New Testament. Look what scripture says, Colossians 1, verse 9 and 10. For we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I feel because we fear legalism to such an extent 
that we would set up a system that if we could keep perfectly, we would earn our way, we would earn God's favor, and that is not what Scripture says the gospel is, far from it. But because we fear legalism to such a degree, we don't talk about living a life that pleases God. We don't talk about living a life that hates sin. But Scripture certainly does. Ephesians 5.10 says, Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That there is something, a way of life that pleases God, that makes God smile. Philippians 4.18, Paul had received this financial gift from the church at Philippi to help him in his missionary endeavors. And he writes in verse 18, I have received the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. God's saying here through his, the Apostle Paul that God is pleased with sacrificial generosity. There's a way that you can handle your resources and give sacrificially to fund the work of God and the mission of God, especially at a high cost to yourself. And when you do that, it's like this sweet aroma to him. We think when we write the check and place it in the basket or if we find um, when we give out money to people who need it in the name of Christ or when we support these great gospel-centered, uh, life-focused missionary endeavors across the world or even in our own city, when we do that, it's not just an act of obedience. That actually pleases God. God smiles when we do that. Colossians 3.20, it says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Maybe we should have got to this part when the kids were still in here, right? This means that when children do not obey their parents, it actually displeases the Lord. It grieves the heart of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. We can please the Lord or displease the Lord with our own sexuality. How you view and handle your sexuality comes down to an issue of how you intentionally pursue pleasing the Lord, that God has a standard for sexuality in our lives, and it's quite clear in Scripture that sex would be saved for the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that doesn't please the Lord, it actually grieves the heart of God. And not just sex, and the cultural epidemic we're in with pornography and media streaming and on, on, on every device we have. There is a lens by which we have to view what we accept. And again, this is not legalism. We're pursuing holiness. We have to ask ourselves, is what I'm about to engage in, engage in going to please the Lord? Is this, plea, is, this, this, is this this fragrant offering to him? Again, this is not legalism. It's not us working to appease God. This is the law of God given to us for our good, that we might fear the Lord and work to align our lives and our hearts with him. 1 Timothy 3, the scripture that's on the back of your by name card, I urge that supplication, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings who are in high positions, that we may lead a, 
that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God is pleased by the prayer life of His people. Again, Scripture tells us that God actually collects the prayers in these bowls in heaven. I was talking with a friend this week about this very thing. That the prayers of the saints do not expire. As many of you know, my dad passed a couple years ago and he was just such a force in my life and discipler and so much wisdom. But he prayed for me and prayed for my kiddos. And he was just so faithful at praying. And I was telling my friend this, whose father also passed. And I said, man, it's just... It's just tough knowing your dad's not praying for you. And he said, Luke, you know that the prayers of the saints never expire. That God is outside of time. The prayers that my dad prayed for me and grandparents prayed for me are still sitting as part of the aroma of heaven even now. Isn't that amazing? That when you pray for other people, that those prayers are not lost. And God might not act as quickly as you might hope he would. But there are no wasted prayers in the kingdom of God. This passage says that God is pleased by the prayer life of his people. It brings a, it brings a smile to him. And on and on we could go. Again, we don't want legalism in the church, adding things to the commandments of God, or trying to work or earn our way into God's family. But that is no reason for us not to hold high the commandments of God. Kevin DeYoung says it this way in his book, A Hole in Our Holiness. Through faith, we are joined to Christ and have union with him. That bond is unbreakable. Our union with Christ is, is an established fact guaranteed for all eternity by the indwelling of the Spirit. When we sin, our union with Christ is not in jeopardy, but our communion is. It is possible for believers to have more or less of God's favor. Listen, it's not easy to be holy. It's not easy to be peculiar. Who wants to think, act, worship, and believe differently than the rest of your friends? It's not easy to say to your friends, hey, you know what, I can't, I can't go see that with you, and I'm not going to that movie, and I'm not going to that place, and I'm not going to engage in this gossip with you. It's not easy for us to take a stance, and there's a way that we can do that in love. There's also a way that we can abuse that, and I'm not talking about that, abusing it, but there is a way that we can, we can have a standard. As redeemed people, we're a peculiar people, a holy nation, an imitation of the heart and nature of our God to the watching world. In such a way that when the people would look at the nation of Israel and Israel's God, they would know that there was something so distinct about them. And in the same way, when our world that is growing more and more post-Christian should be able to look at us and see that there is a marked difference by the people of God. That we should be different, not necessarily weird for weird sake, we should be different, that we operate with a different set of convictions and we do different things with our money than the watching world, that, that we are a different people. 
As a nation of priests, we also extend this invitation. Hey, come and see. Come and look. See our God and see what he's done. That's the point of Exodus 19. That's the point the New Testament draws on this very fact. All of this from our identity to our command and to the purpose that we should be a precious people, a priestly people, that we should be a holy nation. Not so that people would just say, man, look, those people are weird. That's not the goal. Ultimately, it's so that people would see and wonder. And by the grace of God, some will repent and believe and worship. Listen to 1 Peter 2 as we close. Sounds so similar, but you are a chosen race, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What God has done in you, he wants to do through you. Jesus would even say to his followers, you are the light of the world. He's not talking about you specifically. They didn't, they didn't have the word y'all. That's what he's necessarily saying, that y'all are the light of the world. That's what it means, that you as a people, as you do life and community, as you sacrificially love others. Romans 5, 5, that God has birthed his own love in our heart that has enabled us to love people that are so difficult to love. That's what it means, that we would dig deep and give sacrificially, that we would love with the very love of God with no strings attached. That's what God's doing in us, that we would forgive people who are unforgivable, not because we do this on our own, but because God is working in us to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. And Exodus 19, and Peter is saying this in 1 Peter 2, that when you do such a thing, that you communicate to the watching world that you are the people of light. This is how life is meant to be lived. The goal is that we might set forth Christ. And it comes full circle, doesn't it? God makes himself known and shows us, shows us who we are. In turn, we're supposed to live in a way that makes God known. And as we prepare for communion today, I don't want this to be just rote tradition that we do or ritual this is an invitation to come to the table, to sit and dine with Jesus Christ himself, to be reminded that we are incredibly loved by God, invited <clears throat> to his table to dine with him. And that's why he gave us this gift of the meal, that we would be reminded of our identity every time that we take it, that God didn't wait till we had all of our life together before he invited us in. No, but based upon the righteousness of Christ, we've been invited in to come to his table. He gave us this gift of the meal that we'd be reminded of how incredibly loved we are. <clears throat> but we don't stay here long. We go back to our seats and eventually our cars, our homes and our jobs. And in just a few hours, we're going to face disappointment and heartache and temptation of every kind, tough circumstances, all the other things. And it's in that situation, who we are leads to what we do. I would remind you, church, that Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ being formed in you. We have the very Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ who is working in us to enable us to want to 
and the power to follow through on the way that God has commanded us to live. And in doing so, and when we do so, we as a church, as a body of Christ, become this sweet aroma that pleases God and he smiles down on us, but also a sweet aroma to the watching world that our lives would be an invitation as a kingdom of priests. Hey, I want you to come know my Father who loves you perfectly. Let me pray for us. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. We'll have some people down here. Presiding over the communion table and You don't have to be a member at this church to partake in communion, but we do ask that you'd be a part of God's family in some way that you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that as you come to the table, you'd be reminded of how incredibly loved you are. You are are a treasured possession of God saying, of everything on the earth that I'm proud of. Man, you're the one. You're the one that I've chosen. You're the one that I cherish. Then as we return to our seats, we would be reminded of the mantle of responsibility that God has given us, that we, even as broken vessels, would carry this great news of the gospel everywhere we go. Like broken vessels, just dripping a little, this leaking some of this aroma everywhere we go, that God is a God who loves and forgives and saves God, thank you for your great news. I pray as we just sit with that fact that we are loved to that extent and we look through the lens of the cross, reminded of how loved we are, that how Christ, you didn't die just to save us from our sins, but to deliver us out of slavery and into freedom that we could worship God and we could have life even in its abundance, you tell us in John chapter 10. I pray as many in this room still carry around this orphan spirit that that we've been adopted into God's family, but only because he had to, that we would be reminded once again, God, of how much you love us. Or do this work in us. If there's any among us who have not trusted you as Savior and Lord, kind of kicking the tires on this thing this morning, I pray, Father, you'd give them the gift of faith and they would take a step of faith, cross this line of faith, place all their chips to the center of the table and say, God, I trust in you. For those that are carrying just the heaviest burdens today, they'd be reminded they've been invited in your yoke upon us and that we would learn that we could rest in you. For those discouraged, I pray they find encouragement in you today. I pray as we lift our voices up in just a minute, that we would sing from the depths of our hearts like saved, redeemed people that have the hope of the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.